Last week we had a marvelous time in the holy place, hearing again the exciting fact of the grace of God, that God extends to us forgiveness, freedom, that which we don't deserve, but which he loves to give us anyway. This morning I would like to go on sensing, first of all, that the grace of God is the framework for the Christian life. And I trust the message of the morning will show us how to live within that framework. Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 1. If you were to explain to someone what is the message of the Bible, what would you say to them? How would you express to them biblical theology? And I would like to communicate four currents that flow from Genesis through Revelation that really give us the framework of the scriptures. We begin in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. One day. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created mankind in his own image. The Bible begins with the nature of God. Essential to biblical theology is the nature of God, that God is, that God loves, that God cares, that God creates. Then in Matthew 28, as Jesus is ready to leave the disciples, he says, Now men, remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth, or even to the end of the age. When I come to Scripture, I am always brought face to face with the nature of God. But when we come to chapter 3 of Genesis, we find the second current of biblical theology, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it. Then you recall the story how the serpent tempted the woman. She sinned, Adam sinned. And we find coming into history the second current in biblical theology, namely the nature of man. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible would communicate that man has a sinful nature, is selfish, brings injury to himself, to others, and to God. But the scripture goes on and moves free from the nature of God to the nature of man and into a third current. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I begin at verse 10. Jesus was in the world. And the world was made through Christ. And the world did not know Christ. Christ came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to all of those who believe on his name. I find in Scripture the nature of God crushed with the nature of man, and therefore God developing a plan. And the third current all through Scripture is the plan of God. There are different parts to the plan. The first part being that God longs that I would come back to him and become his child. God wants me for himself. God wants me to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So God invites me to come to the cross to ask forgiveness that I might become his son. The first step in the plan of God is to come and receive Christ as Savior. But there's another very significant part of the plan of God after I receive Christ. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for calamity or for evil, to give you a future and a hope. All through Scripture, God would make plain that he has a plan and that his plan for us is good. Not only is it good, but turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I begin to read at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When I come to faith in Christ, I establish a relationship with God. But there's something then that God wants to bring to me. He wants to bring to me as a Christian, not only the relationship with Christ, but the perspective of God. And in the plan of God, there is biblical perspective. And biblical perspective says this, God's plan is good. Whatever the situation, God is causing all things in that situation to work for good for you and for those called according to his purpose. Yesterday we went to Canyon Meadows, and prior to arriving at the camp, we stopped at a very small store, a very small store. Seventy of us walked into this store. We sort of squeezed our way in and through and around and stumbled over one another and got something to drink and some snacks. Then we were standing out front talking, and I was talking to John Jamalian, and uh, John, as you know, works for Akron, and is sort of in charge of their financial base, and thinking that through. And John said, this fellow's business, wow, the profit base just went up tremendously. I wouldn't have thought of that in 10 years. But see, that's where John lives. That's John's perspective. I don't live with profit base. I live with body. So I thought, oh yes, 70 of us hitting that store. Well, at least we'll be interesting. And the whole issue in the Christian life is perspective. Once I come to Christ, now in the plan of God, am I ready to accept biblical perspective? That God really causes all things. Not 50% of the things, not 90% of the things, or even 99%, but God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Essential to biblical theology is my response to the plan of God, that I come to Christ and have that relationship with him, and then that God gives to me his perspective. There is a fourth current in Scripture, 
Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. And now the fourth current, verse 11. Now no one is justified by the law before God, for the just shall live by faith. This was the cry of the Reformation, found in Romans and Hebrews as well. The just shall live by faith. But faith always must have an object. The just shall live by faith in the nature of God. The just shall live by faith. What's the fourth current? It's the process of God. How does God work out his plan? The first ingredient in the process is understanding the just shall live by faith in the nature of God. There is another ingredient. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read, first of all, from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now Ephesians 5, verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus. God stresses that it's a giving thanks process. And notice the two prepositions, giving thanks in all things and giving thanks for all things. There are many times when I'm in a situation, but I'm not thankful for the situation. God says in the process of living by faith, we're to be involved in giving thanks in all things for all things. This is biblical theology. The process of God, living by faith, giving thanks in everything and for everything. The plan of God, coming to faith in Christ, and then taking on God's perspective, that the plan of God is good, and He's working out everything for His good and His glory and for your good. Biblical theology, the nature of man, man is rebellious, the nature of God. But now, point number two, what is emotional theology? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 14. Let me give you the historical setting of Numbers 14. You recall the Israelites were in bondage to the Egyptians. They cried unto God. God heard, raised up Moses, and they were freed people. They went down to Mount Sinai. There they received the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle, the way they were to worship God. They numbered the people, and now God says, you're to leave Sinai and go on to the Promised Land. They've now left Sinai. They're near the Promised Land, and they send out 12 spies. Two of the spies come back, and they say, it's a terrific land, just like God said. Flowing with milk and honey. And here are some grapes. Have one. They taste so fine. They had picked some grapes as sort of show and tell hour that what God has said is really true. That was the message of two men. But the ten men said, oh, that's right. We accept that part of the report. We agree with you. It's rich land, flowing with milk and honey. But you've got to see those walls around the cities. They are enormous. We couldn't conquer those cities. And you ought to see the people. They are gigantic. The Anakims are there. Why, if we played them in basketball, we wouldn't have a chance. Much less to conquer them. Oh. And so the Israelites brought the report of the ten. And in chapter 14 of Numbers, we find emotional theology. I begin to read at verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and all the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, 
Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. What's occurring here? Notice verse 2. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Emotional theology disagrees with one or more of God's currents. Here's the current of God. We're going to a land. They say, no, we don't want to go to this land. We'd rather die in the wilderness. Or why didn't you let us die in Egypt? They disagreed with the plan of God. Verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They disagreed with the process of God. We don't like this at all. So they came up with their own plan. Let's go back to Egypt. Emotional theology disagrees with one of the currents of biblical theology. Either with the nature of God, the nature of man, the plan of God, or the process of God. Emotional theology either disagrees with one of the currents of biblical theology, or it ignores one of the currents of biblical theology. And the reason the ten were afraid to go up was because they had ignored the current known as the nature of God. It was Joshua and Caleb who said, God is with us. Let's go. They were ready to go because they had not ignored that current known as the nature of God. And Numbers 14 would make very plain that emotional theology is sin. It is not just a thought or two. It's not just my ideas versus God's. It is sin. And that's a strong word, but it's a very biblical word. What is the cost of emotional theology? Verse 11, Numbers 14. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs that I have performed in their midst? first cost of emotional theology is it breaks the heart of God. The more I am overwhelmed by the love of Christ, the more I do not want to break the heart of God. And emotional theology breaks the heart of God. It does something else. Chapter 14, verse 22. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness... These men who have put me to the test ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers they will not enter it. The second cost of emotional theology is it means I will never become and I will never experience what I could have become and what I could have experienced. Here was a generation that had the opportunity to enter the promised land they became involved in emotional theology. And when Joshua and Caleb pleaded with them to come back to biblical theology, they said no. And it cost them the beautiful experience of entering the promised land. It also meant that that generation never became individually or collectively what they could have become. Emotional theology has a tremendous price to it. I will never become the man I could become. There is a third cost, verse 18, Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations. God makes plain 
that my sin affects others. What is emotional theology? It's that which disagrees with one of the currents of biblical theology, or it ignores one of the currents, and it is sin. It's cost. It hurts the Father. It means I'll never become what I could have become. It hurts others. Which theology are you living? And I don't mean to imply that we will ever, until we go to heaven, constantly live in the framework of biblical theology. But we need to be going in that direction. Which theology do you live at home? In a congregation this large, it is inevitable that there are some who would say, I just don't love my wife anymore. My love for her is gone. My love for my husband is gone. I can't do it. Emotional theology. And you've set aside the whole issue of the nature of God, that God is love. And God is the one who brings love to us and gives us a renewed love for our mates. Have you set aside the nature of God in terms of love for your own mate? And you say, I can't. Will you be one of the congregation that sides up with the ten and never enters the promised land? Never knows the full joy you could know in this earth? Which theology do you live at home in relation to your children? How have your children heard you, verbally heard you, describe your nature? Now let's face it, our children know that we are sinful, correct? Mine certainly know that I am sinful. But have they heard me say it to them? Have they really heard me confess sin and ask forgiveness for the way I've injured them? If they have not, know that the day will come when they'll hit the years of teenage years especially and they'll start to get involved in sin and some very severe sin severe in terms of scar tissue in life from drugs to the bottle to sex to abortion to you name it and all of a sudden someday you'll hear about it and you'll say but why didn't they tell me why didn't they come to me you know why they didn't come to you imperfect people are afraid of perfect people. And when your children have never heard you say that you sin and have a sinful nature, and then they have to live with their own sinful nature, they will not have the capacity to come to you and say, Mom, help me, Dad, help me. I'm in a mess. I'm in trouble. And so your children come to me and to others, and we say, why don't you go tell it to Mom and Dad? They'll help you. I wouldn't dare, Chuck. Well, why not? My folks will disown me. They'll say, look at what you've done to our name. Oh, I wouldn't dare tell them. So your children drift farther and farther away from you. And your emotional theology drives a tremendous wedge between you and them. Which theology do you and I live at home? Which theology do you and I live at work? You know, the boss. Oh, boy. But Chuck, you don't know my boss. Oh, man. Boy, those people that I work with. You know that guy who works next to me? I do three times the work he does, he gets the same salary that I get. Talk about unfair! And then my job, it's an absolute endurance contest. Wait, what am I hearing? I guess the plan of God for you is not good. And I guess the process of God for you is to gripe and complain and be angry and become bitter. That's emotional theology that I'm hearing. It brings tremendous injury to the heart of God and tremendous injury to your own life and to others. 
Wait, there's work. And as you go to work tomorrow, will you go as a man and a woman of biblical theology, praising God in every situation, for every situation? And which theology do you live in relation to yourself? How do you see yourself? You, know, you stand in front of the mirror and you sort of make a little inventory of all the raw material that God put in you. What do you think of the raw material God put in you? Then you begin to compare yourself to others. Oh, boy. Down the scale we go, very rapidly. What do we do then? And you know, biblical theology says, God is the only all-wise God. And we in statement will say, God's a wise God. But in reality, in where we live, we tend to say, God is all-wise, has always been that throughout history, but on one day, He was remarkably stupid. And that's the day when God made me. And on that day, God just somehow didn't use all wisdom in making me. Because if he would have, I'd be like this and this and this and this. What a tragedy. And I live in the context of emotional theology, not biblical theology, praising God for his wisdom, for his nature. How do you see yourself in relation to your position? You're maybe married. Or you're a widow or a widower. Or you're single and hopeful. And here you are. How do you see that position that you are in today? Well, I'll sure be glad when I get out of it. Wait. The plan of God for you is good. The plan of God for Chuck Miller is good. Not average. Good. Well, I really believe that. Which theology... Do you live at home, at work, in relation to yourself? And finally, at Lake Avenue Church. A board makes a decision. You don't like it. You grab the phone. Do you really believe that God's plan is good? And God causes everything to work together for good? Well, you come to church, and it seems that somebody ignores you. And you go home so mad. Oh, boy. Of course, if they came up to you and said, My, we've missed you. Then you say, Oh, you know what? All they do is make me feel guilty for not coming. And so you can't win, no matter whether you say hi or don't say hi. But wait. Let's assume that somebody else was wrong and that you were ignored. Will you accept the process of God giving thanks in everything, for everything? A few weeks ago, we had summer staff training for the youth staff. During that week was the Board of Christian Education meeting. And so we were a little late leaving for the staff training time because Phyllis and I were making a tape for the Board of Christian Ed and that we wouldn't be at the meeting. So we go up and we're at Canyon Meadows. Two or three days later, I get news that through communications goof and other things, the board never got our tape. Oh, I was so mad. Oh, I heard that. I stopped, I jumped around, I had to tell a few people, I was so teed off. They, well, why didn't they get it? Well, you know, and I built my case. It was a terrific case. And it was sin. But it was a tremendous case. I could even get others to agree with me. That's always helpful. But it was sin. And then they had a special meeting a week later, 
they had the tape that night. They listened to it. And after that meeting, a few days later, we were together, some of us in Lewis Curry, the chairman of the board, said, you know, Chuck, the timing of God on that tape was perfect. If we would have listened to it the week before, we would have been rushed and so on in this past week. The timing was perfect. Isn't it great how God causes everything to work together for good to those who love God? Oh, yes, it's terrific. And all of a sudden, I have to come to grips with the fact I dare not say one thing and not ask God to help me live it. And Lord, I really want to believe that the plan of God says God will cause everything to work together for good. What's your theology at Lake Avenue Church? How do you cope with the new things? Back in January, the youth family came to me and they said, we think we need to go to two TBCs. One week we'll have TBC East and one week TBC West. I looked. What? Do you realize what we're asking? This and this and this, and I was terrific at listing the problems. What I was really saying to them was not that the just shall live by faith, but the just shall live in the framework of my experience. And how could we ever do that? I went home and prayed some more, and God said, wait a minute, the just shall live by faith in the nature of God, and God is a God who loves to do new things. Will you allow him to do new things? And I had to come back and talk to the youth family and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I really think it would be tremendous for us to try two TBCs. Five weeks later, the guys meet me again. You know what? All the beds are taken for the senior high retreat. Why don't we have two retreats in the same weekend? I looked at the guys. Hey, look, you seminarians, you're always up in the clouds, dreaming all these crazy ideas. You know, there's no way we could have two retreats in the same weekend. Do you realize what's involved? We book retreat places almost a year ahead of time. Now, ten days before retreat, we're going to find a place. Going to have two retreats, two staffs, two groups of speakers. Guys, you're nuts. And God began to, uh, wait, Chuck. The just shall live in the framework of Chuck Miller's experience. Oh, sorry, Lord. The just shall live by faith in the nature of God. Oh, God loves to do new things. But so often I hedge him in. I put him in a box, the box of my own experience, and say God can't be bigger. Oh, that's emotional theology. Setting aside the process of God that says take a step of faith, believing in my nature. Now, how do you live in the framework of biblical theology? I don't mean to imply that I always live in the framework of biblical theology, but I trust that we have a passion to live there. First suggestion, praise God daily for who He is. Lay hold of the nature of God. Praise Him for who He is. You may want to read a psalm every day. Praise God daily in the context of the psalms. Secondly, immediately confess emotional theology as sin. That is just a little weakness. It's sin. But too many times we're willing to live in the framework of emotional theology and then get our cheering section to cheer us on in that theology. Thirdly, thank God for every situation, the past and the present. Oh, the joy of that. Thank God for every situation, the past and the present. And the fourth suggestion about how to live in the framework of biblical theology. When you hear and when I hear people share how they are and where they are, 
listen carefully to the theology they are sharing. If it's biblical theology, taking into account the nature of God, nature of man, plan of God, process of God, praise them. Stand with them and go on and conquer the cities with big walls and the Anakims. But if, instead of praising God, they're griping. Instead of having godly perspective, they have human perspective. They've totally ignored the nature of God. If that which they're sharing is emotional theology, lovingly, lovingly correct them, standing with them in the process. Because have you ever noticed when you've been in a conversation with emotional theology, you go away and it's rubbed off on you? You ever notice that? And that breaks God's heart and it hurts your life and it hurts the life of the other person. I pray that I will be a man who doesn't only listen to the view of somebody about the resurrection, the authority of Scripture, the virgin birth, and so on. That is essential. But it is just as essential that I listen well to the theology of God's people and to the theology that they are living, not just to the theology that they say they believe. We dare not identify with the ten and go back to Egypt. God says, let's go into the land. I pray that we will be a people, that I will be a man, that you will be a man and a woman, that we will be a congregation that says, yes, Lord, I really believe that you're with us. I'm ready to walk. I'm ready to run. I'm ready to see the Anakims clobbered, the cities destroyed. I'm ready to go on believing God. I trust that that's where we will stand. It won't come easy. We'll slide back and forth from time to time. But that we will be people bringing one another back to biblical theology, standing with Joshua and Caleb, saying, Lord, let's go. Because he is with us. Let's pray together. Father, in a world that knows so much pressure, so much hurt, it's so easy to be discouraged. It's so easy to question God, to wonder if you've forgotten about us, Lord. It's so easy to be afraid of forward marching, and so we want to go back to what we've known before. And it seems so secure. Lord, forgive us when we would do that. Lord, make me a man who has a hunger to live in the framework of biblical theology. Cause me to see your nature and to admit the problem of sin in my own nature. Cause me, Lord, to respond well to the plan of God. Give me your perspective. And then, Lord, put me in that process of living by faith and in everything giving thanks. And we go, Lord, and we say this, that now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask or imagine or think of, to the only wise God, be all glory and all honor and all praise as we go in to possess the land. We give you praise in the marvelous name of Jesus Christ.